Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. And so as we're looking at Nehemiah 1 and verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let's just stop there for a moment and pause. We're in the, town, the city of Susa. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa. You might recognize Susa from last week when we were talking about Esther. And uh, the edict went out and it says that the Jews were wielded uh, in the city of Susa. The city of Susa is the capital of Persia. And, uh, and that's where a lot of the exiles are. <clears throat> and that's where Nehemiah is. Uh, Nehemiah... And, and so he's there in the city of Susa and we find out later that he's cupbearer to the king. He has a passion for his homeland, as lots of exiles obviously did. And he asks his brother, and the word there could also mean kinsman, about what's going on back there. As we read, it says the walls are broken down and it's in ruins. Now, it's not talking about when the original way that made them ruined, which was with King Nebuchadnezzar, that was a couple of hundred years before. Um, It's talking about when Ezra went back to do the work to rebuild the temple and then actually opposition came and uh, they went back through the history books and and as the Jews were making progress, they'd rebuild the temple and they were about to rebuild the walls, that someone said, someone of the enemy came back to them and said, you don't want this to happen. You don't want these people to rebuild these walls. You've got to look back in the history books. These are troublemakers. This was a powerful nation. If they rebuild what they had, they'll become a powerful nation again. And so what they do is they go back through the history books. They read that actually, yep, they were rebellious. They had large um, tracts of land. They were successful. They were, after all, the people of God. And so they stopped them from rebuilding the wall. They wanted to weigh their strength before it started. And when Nehemiah says to his brother, "What there's used twice in both the question and in the answer. In here we see it's the returned, but it's talking about the remnant. You see, the remnant was a group of the Jewish people who'd been prophesied about, that actually um, deliverance would come through this remnant, that Israel would be made a great nation again through this remnant. So the remnant was very important to them. That's why um, Nehemiah's talking about it. He's saying, how's the remnant going? And his brother says, the remnant's in disgrace. And there's this real invested part of them that wants to know how it's going because that's going to cause the deliverance of the entire nation. So we get down to um, verse 4 and it says that when he heard these things, I sat down and I wept. Now, as we're talking about in pursuit of purpose and going forward in our series, this is the point where Nehemiah finds his burden. He's clearly already got a burden for the nation and for his homeland, But this is where he finds his burden and Daz is going to talk a little bit more about that. But listen to this. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I wonder if you've ever had a burden that took you to that place. Did your burden ever so grab you that you actually mourned, that it actually did something on the inside of you? Where actually I think about Mitch and going to India and um, other countries that we're not allowed to mention. 
And, and it's something, and it, it's for Desley as well, although it's looked different across the years, it's something that's actually gotten on the inside of them and it's broken their heart. And as we pursue our purpose, we want nothing less than that, than something that breaks our heart. We don't want to live, you know, for, for our own purpose and for our own um, better standing. We don't want that because that doesn't break our heart. You might be like, it really does, Brian. I really, really, really want to be rich. But that shouldn't break your heart in the way that um, living on purpose really, really does. So Nehemiah, who in every other part of this book we see is decisive and swift to action, here he pauses and he waits and he prays. And church, that's what we've just done for 21 days, prayer and fasting. We waited on God. We didn't jump to action. We weren't like, we've got to do something about this right now. We actually said, okay, let's prepare our hearts for what's next. Let's prepare our minds for what's next. Let's prepare our spirits for what's next. He mourned. He felt the weight of it. He fasted. He, he allocated priority to this. He took away the priorities normally of his life, of eating and drinking and being merry, and fasted an allocated priority of weight and time to this. And he prayed. He acknowledged where his help come, comes from, from the God of heaven. Then I said, verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. <clears throat> Let's pause there. What we don't read, just because we're not Jews, as we read that passage, is that Nehemiah's actually quoted Deuteronomy four times there. He's quoted Deuteronomy 28, 64, 30, verse 1 to 4, 12, verse 5, and 9, 29. And if we were Jews that had learned the Torah, we would know that. He's actually quoting God's scriptures to God as he prays. He's coming into alignment with the Bible as he prays. You know, we often wonder, how do I pray according to God's will? We just pray scripture. That's how we pray God's will. And if you've been praying the daily devotions, if you've been looking um, on the app as Lucky Blaine did, or if you've been um, looking on the um, the link that got sent out to you via email, you'll notice that after the daily devotion, every prayer has three or four scriptural references to it. You might have been wondering, why is it breaking up the flow of this prayer with these scripture references? Well, we just want to get used to praying scripture. We want to pray according to God's will. We want to pray, you know, when you wonder and say, oh, I, well, I said in Jesus' name, isn't that according to God's will? No, his will is actually what he's written down as well. And we want to pray according to that and pray to that because that's what Nehemiah did here. Why would we do that? Well, because God is for God. God is for us. God is for you. God is for me. He is 100% for us. He loves us. He laid down his life for us. But he is also for his glory and he will glorify his name. And I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe you're like, whoa, he's a bit narcissistic. No, he's God. He made the heavens and the earth. He's above all. He's in all. He's through all. He's all together. He is magnificent and majestic. And so I'd much pray, much rather pray according to what he says than according to what my mind says on any given day. My mind, it depends on the flavour of the curry I had the night before as to what I'm praying today. My mind, I'm, it, it, it makes a difference what Nate said to me this morning as I walked in the door. That's how I'm praying. I call down fire from heaven on Nate, Lord. He didn't smile on me at me. <laughs> smile on me, that's weird. Okay, um, so God is for God. We want to come into alignment with him rather than just praying according to our own will. 
And so in verse 8 to 10, Nehemiah is reminding God of his promises and his word so that boosts his confidence to pray for those things. This is the, a verse that I want to dwell on for a second. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Tim Keller writes this amazing article about justice. It's like pages and pages long. It is absolutely incredible. And he's talking about justice for our earth today and the things that are necessary. He goes through multiple things. But one of the things he talks about is corporate responsibility. And Nehemiah here is taking corporate responsibility for what has occurred. You see, us in, in our natural self and in our wooden world, we try to abdicate responsibility wherever we can. We try to say, well, that wasn't my fault. Well, that wasn't me that did that all that time ago. So why should I say sorry for that? But here's Nehemiah saying sorry as a nation. He's saying, well, we as a nation have committed sin. So we as a nation need to repent. And I'll, I'll put my head up and say, me first, God. I'll repent for that. And I wonder where it is in us where we want to abdicate responsibility rather than take it. Where we're first front on our lips is, well, I didn't do that, so I'm not saying sorry. What is that with us? I'll just pose that question to you today. Why? What is it about us that, us that says that? Why would we say that? In Ezra chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 9, both of those men, both godly men, who by all accounts hadn't actually done well, nothing recorded wrong, they take responsibility for their nation and they say, we as a people have sinned against you, God. And where is it that we as people need to take responsibility? I don't know if you remember in the drought, we kept praying our two Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. Yes, Tandy? Yes. <laughs> that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And when it got, you know, it's interesting, the more desperate things get, the more willing we are to take responsibility and begin to pray differently. And so when things increasingly got more and more desperate around here in the drought, then we started repenting for our name. Things that didn't occur to us before to repent for, all of a sudden we're like, God, we'll humble ourselves and pray. If Lord, if you need to heal this land, we'll repent for the things that other people have done, even though we might not be. We're part of it, Lord. We're part of this nation, so we'll take responsibility. And here Nehemiah is doing exactly that. He goes all the way into it and says, well, actually, there's things that I've done, God. I'll admit to it. I, I've cast off your word. My family has cast off your word. So, yeah, I'll take responsibility for that. And so I'll just pose to you again, where is it that you could take responsibility, but you're very quick to abdicate it? You can say amen or you can say, stop talking, Brian. <laughs> okay, good. Just a few people said amen. A few people silently said stop talking, but that's fine. I didn't hear it. Okay. Eight, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Here he goes again reminding them. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, just reminding him of his promises, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cut bearer to the king. That's, sorry, that's my favourite line. It's like this epic, like, dramatic end to the chapter. The excitement, the trepidation. I was cupbearer to the king. Stop. 
Okay. <laughs> now we've been talking in this series about, about position and passion and past experiences and how they can all come together and combine to have us pursue our purpose. And here's Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. And we might go, well, yeah, of course he could do something. Like he's so close to the king. Let's not forget, cupbearer to the king is the person that tastes the wine to make sure it's not poisoned. And if the cupbearer dies, the king not to drink that wine. He's in a precarious position as cupbearer to the king. He is, however, also in an influential position. And so that's why God called him to do what he needed to do. And that's why God's put you in the position that you're in because he's called you for something specific and it's the position that you're in. It's for you not to despise it but to go, actually, I'm here for a purpose and for a reason. Now, just as we finish, um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, records him as a eunuch and that would be typical. Um, A eunuch is someone who's been emasculated as an exile. That was typical that if you were in the king's courts, because if you're anywhere near the queen, um, they wanted to make sure there was no risk. So I don't need to finish that sentence. Um, And so they would, um, so he's a eunuch. Now, why is that at all relevant? We're going to see later that he's tricked into going into the courts um, of God, the courts of the temple. And the person tricked him into that is obviously hoping that the law of God that says that that, that person should never be there, that they'll get cast out. But we need to recall that in Isaiah, God makes provision for every eunuch that has been exiled. God knew that these people would be exiled, that they would be emasculated and they would not be able uh, to, according to the law, to come into the presence of God. But as we know, God cares more about people than he cares about the rules. So he's already made provision for them to come into his house. So if you, by what you've done, feel excluded from the house of God, just remember that God cares more about people than he cares about the rules. And he's included you and brought you back in. And you're here today, not by accident, but for a purpose and for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Going forward and then communion. So we're talking in pursuit of purpose. Uh, Acts 20, verses 22 to 24 say this. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. Thanks, mate. And he says, And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. Who's excited about God-appointed purpose? (laughs) But my life is not worth... Is, is worth nothing to me. Listen to this. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. This is a profound statement by the Apostle Paul as it relates to purpose. It actually, this little passage really condenses for us just how profound the purpose of God is over a believer's life. If, you, if you're not someone who knows anything Jesus, you, you're looking at that going, whoa, what? That is, it's big on lots of levels. What an extraordinary, extraordinary statement it is. And so this is a man who was living on purpose and out of purpose, God's general purpose. And I think that's so important over the years. You know, you meet people who are so fixated on God's unique purpose for their lives and you want to whisper to them, and if you know them and love them, and they know you love them, you can say, hey, if you'll live the general will, the unique will will follow, but let's get the general going on so that the unique can begin to flow. And Paul was living both of them. And so today in week two of this series, in 
we just want to remind you, or we want to look at three things. Uh, and, and our hope, our prayer for the end of this series is that if you're not there already, that your life would come to the place where you would say, I have a vision for my future. And most importantly, that it would be God and God appointed, but a vision for your future. I was in the gym yesterday and there's this guy I randomly run into and, and I, want to be, I want to be alert and aware when I'm in the gym. And so I ran into Tim and so it was good to have a conversation with a believer. And then I ran into these young Fijian guys and you always know that the Fijian guys have been to church somewhere. So I went over and struck up a conversation, had a crack at them, even though I didn't know for them about their lack of work ethic in their gym workout, and, which was not really fair because they were way fitter than me. And then, and then there's this other guy I know, I have a conversation with him periodically. Not a believer, doesn't believe in God, definitely doesn't go to church. And in the middle of the conversation, he says to me, well, the good thing about my life, Darren, is I know the purpose that I'm here for. I'm like, tell me about that. And he could articulate it in a sentence. Now, this guy wasn't a CEO. He wasn't, you know, some corporate guru. He wasn't running his own business. He actually works a really regular job on shift work here in town. But he articulated for me in one clear sentence his purpose. And I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, okay, let's rush to his next step. What is that? And I thought if he can find purpose, whether we believe it's God appointed purpose or not, if he can find it, surely those of us who know God can connect with God in a way that we could find it. And so today I want to look at three things as a real purpose. And here's what I would say to you. Sermons on Sunday will help us get in the ballpark but the midweek studies, the daily devotions, I will tell you personally, I do the daily devotions every morning. If you want to get up super early, we can connect over them. Actually, we can't. I don't want to speak to you at 5.30, but <laughs> the idea is good. Um, but I can tell you that personally, and I prepare half the sermons, I can tell you that personally the most I'm getting out of this is the daily devotions. And so I just encourage you around those things. You don't even need to leave it. It's all on your phone. And, and, and my hope and prayer is that as you get to the end of this series, you would be able to make that statement that God has clearly given you a vision, maybe not for your whole life, but a section of your life, part of your life, the next season of your life. If you've come to the end and go, I don't really feel like I'm there, or that's done, or I've never been there. Well, today's the day. This is a month. Why not here and now find our way forward? So here are the three things today in week two. Number one that we see in Paul here is the Spirit's prompting. Number one, the Spirit's prompting. In Nehemiah, where we've just been reading from, uh, Nehemiah doesn't even realize at first that it's actually what the Bible calls the Spirit's promptings. God prompting people with things that he places in their heart. Don't you love that idea? In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah says how his heart is stirred. By Nehemiah chapter 2, he's talking about how God placed it in his heart. He doesn't even realize at first that this is God who put it there. He just recognizes that there's a stirring going on. But he soon comes to the place where I think this is more than me. I think this might actually be, be God. And I think sometimes the natural stirrings that are in our heart are connected to more than us just getting stirred up about a thing. So number one, the Spirit's promptings. Paul said in this passage, bound by the Spirit, I go to Jerusalem. He says, the Holy Spirit leads me to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit. And then he says, the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. Now, it's worth noting, oh, that was going to be a great catch. It actually stood on its own, but it was going to be a great catch. Sorry. Um, so he says here, day after day, or city after city. 
And what's interesting about that, because sometimes, especially if you come out of an environment like ours, everybody's waiting, or lots of people are waiting, to hear audibly from heaven. Or clearly in their heart. And all good, and that's absolutely true. And, and I pray that God speaks to you in that way. God also speaks to us from his word, obviously in profound ways. But you know, when we look at Paul and what he's saying here, the Holy Spirit, it was actually in this instance, it was something that was in his heart, but it was also people as he was on his way. Like weird things would happen, like people would turn up and, and um, put a belt around themselves or they put their hands like in cuffs. Imagine getting greeted um, and this, Paul, you shall go like this to Jerusalem. It, it wasn't a voice for he from heaven so much as the people around him, the prophetess daughters of Stephen and others like that, speaking into his life in a way that he recognized was the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's prompting in, in our life. Listen to this, Acts 13, 1 to 3, talk about the Spirit's promptings as it relates to purpose. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and who had been brought up by Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. These God promptings. Paul had a vision for his life and, and now he's in this season. The Holy Spirit's prompting and the Holy Spirit is confirming and the Holy Spirit gave him a next step as it related to the purpose of God and the vision God had placed in his heart. Axteen, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. I like that. I like that there's things that I try and step into that the Spirit prompts me not to. And when I stay open to him. So they passed by there, went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing there and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had the vision, we got ready to leave. And we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I reckon I'd conclude the same, by the way, if I had a vision. So we see that Paul is getting spoken to by people. He's getting spoken to by the prophetess daughters of Stephen, that he's getting spoken to in visions and dreams. It's the leading of God in the purpose of Paul and the vision God has placed in his life. And so the Bible says in Romans Acts 16 to us, our spirit bears wits with his spirit. And that's a great measure. My spirit bears witness with his spirit, and so does yours. And so people of purpose look for the, where the Holy Spirit is speaking and where the spirit, our spirit, and the Holy Spirit, it seems to resonate. It seems good to me and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, is what Paul said. And so uh, in your life, in mine, what an opportunity it is. What a privilege. What a privilege that the God of all things would prompt you and I by his spirit. I find that an incredible thought. I want to wake up in that place and follow those leadings in my life. So that's the first thing. The second thing as it relates to purpose and vision is this. Number two is certain uncertainty. This thought straight from Craig Rochelle. Uh, uh, and, and really certain uncertainty. And what we mean here is you have an idea of what your purpose may be, but you have no idea how you're going to get there. And there is always that going on as it relates to God-appointed purpose. The person who cannot navigate the uncertainty, incertainty, 
will find it hard for the purpose and vision of God to come to pass in their life. These two things come together. Paul, Paul actually says it like this, I can't escape this now, even if I wanted to. This is so strong in me. I have to do what I'm feeling to go to Jerusalem. He says this, I like this. Well, I don't like it, but I do like it because it helps me. I don't know what awaits me. So Paul couldn't have clearer purpose. And Paul couldn't have more clarity of vision. But he says, hey, between here and there, and on the journey that I know is my purpose, I want you to know this. I don't know what's ahead. Certain uncertainty. And, and, and anybody who's going to live God-appointed purpose, anybody who's going to pursue godly visions come to that place where they have to live with a tension of both, absolutely certain, and navigating uncertainty. It was true of him. We just read Nehemiah. Nehemiah was absolutely certain of what God was going to do. Well, as certain as you can get. I'm not sure how many people live 100% certain. I don't know if you know who Louis Giglio is. Some of you would, right? Louis Giglio says, I'm only ever 90% certain. I thought, that'll do me, 90%, actually 51% probably do, but 90% will definitely do me. And if you get it wrong occasionally, no big deal, nothing lost. But when something gets to the core of your being and it rattles around and just because there's uncertainty around the process, the journey, the, the, some of the elements, that's, that's the God part. That's, we need uncertainty. Otherwise, why do we need God? I've never known anyone who's been given God-given purpose and a God-given vision that didn't need to navigate uncertainty. If I can navigate it without God, what's the point of that? That's not miraculous. That's called just methodically walking it through until I get to where I'm headed. No, it needs God to turn up, and that's the whole point of the kind of purpose he gives. And the great thing about it is he gets the glory. So if you've been around here, you know. You know. You absolutely know that what has happened even to this point, I'm not good enough to pull it off. Bron might be a little bit closer, but she's not good enough to pull it off. And for sure, some of you aren't good enough to pull it off. But we're certain, historically, we're always certain of where we're headed. We're the 90%. We're Leo Giglio certain. And God always brings it to pass. But how did we end up in this building? Man, when I moved to town, this was a bowling alley. In fact, when I moved to town, the building next door that became our church wasn't even our church. In fact, when we moved to town, we weren't even the pastors. We weren't in the ACC. We were just two young people, yes, young people, and with a sense of what God had called us to. And then he puts an idea in your heart, and you go with it, and you go, and the first one I remember, and it's like, we can't do it. How are we going to do that? that? I did it math. I actually sat down and worked it out mathematically against every regional church I knew what God had placed in our heart for that three-year period. It couldn't happen. And we were doing it against a backdrop where nothing happened. But God placed it in our heart. God navigates the uncertainty as long as we're walking through it certain. And then he put a second idea in our heart. And a year ago, I'm driving up the hill to Armadale thinking, how on earth did that come to pass? Well, it certainly wasn't my brilliant ability. God, as we walk with him, certain in the uncertainty. And now, you know, as we embark on the next season, we're talking about things like an expansive church in 10 locations. We don't have the resource. We don't have the leaders. We don't know the locations. But... As sure as we're standing here right now, I'm pretty certain in my life, more than 90% sure because I know how God speaks, that we will see that come to pass probably in the next seven years. We'll see that come to pass and, and we'll be 10 locations strong. And yet it's full of uncertainty. And purpose in your life is going to be the same. It's going to be certain, at least 90%. You can go with Leo Giglio certainty. 
And it's going to have such uncertainty. It's meant to. Because here's the great thing. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. I'm amazed how many times God brings someone in or takes me off to the side so that I can't get the glory. I don't know if that suggests that I would take the glory, but what I know for sure, it ensures that he gets the glory and everybody knows it, including me. And so in your life too, certain uncertainty, embrace it. And then the final thought here today, the final thought is number three, is building in capacity, capacity building. Just building that in is critical to living in purpose. Craig O'Shell puts it like this, I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. I will do today what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. And for the only time in my life, I think we might actually phrase this better than Craig Rochelle. (laughs) If we build capacity in, we position for what's possible with God. That's the reality. If we build capacity in, and I can tell you, we really have just tried to be acts true, tried to keep a good heart and tried to build capacity in. That's about how simple the plan's always been. And what we notice is that when we build capacity in, we position for what's possible with God. The vision God gives you, the purpose God places in you, it will always require more capacity than where we're at right now. Always. Always. It always will. Wherever you are now, there's a gap between you and the God appointed future. There's certainly a gap between you and if he places in your heart. I love it and I'll sum it up this way. Acts chapter 6 talks about capacity better than anything. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, they have a problem, a problem that many Christians today would get up in arms if it happened. They were forgetting to feed the widows and the widows were starving. And in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, so we don't get too enamoured with the early church, they forgot to feed people who it was their responsibility to feed. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, they're in revival. Just a few verses later. They're in revival. The gospel's spreading. People are coming to faith in Christ. And then in between, what happened? It says they, they put in people to look after the widows. The only thing we see in between the problem and where they're stuck and the, the, the revival that came is that they actually built capacity in. They positioned the church for what was possible with God, and that's what we do with our lives. T.S. Eliot said it like this, the great ages didn't have more talent, they just wasted less. Jesus said this, he's slightly better than T.S. Eliot, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. So so building in capacity is so important in our lives. Um, um, And so let's do that. The first thing is to steward the now, to the fullest of our ability. And you, many of you have heard me talk about that. Just steward the now to the fullest of our ability. How are you going with that? And then the other thing is assess the now with honest humility. That's a hard one. Own where I'm at. Own where what's going on. Just own it. I've got to learn to own stuff. So here, here are some, I'll just give you the, the, I thought, let me write down since I've you know, been leading our church with Bron, some of the things. Here they are, because you'll have a next one as well. Attitude, consistency, rule my spirit. Serve when it's not my way and not on my terms. Live with purpose when it seems impossible. Zero chance of happening. Grow my grit. Deliver outcomes. Raise and rally people. Get more organised. I think that one's been for 20 years. Or employ people who are super organised. Thank you all. Um, Learn to say no. Have the tough conversation. Lead strong through personal pain, doubt and opposition. Stay with the vision in our heart. When there's not a single sign, not a single sign, it will come to pass. Do professional development. Hire a coach. Lead in and through chaos. Lead in expansion. Lead in multiple smears. Live small in your own eyes, comfortable in your own skin, confident in your own call. 
16 own my stuff. They have all been capacity building periods of the last 15 years. Been a whole lot going on there when you stop to think about it. Your life is the same. Let's be the kind of people that are going to do the work of building in capacity. We're going to be the kind of people who just keep turning up, certain in uncertainty, and let's make sure that you know we are living by the Spirit's promptings in Jesus' name. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.